City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Limits. Okay, City Limits on air, and um, it's the uh, fourth Wednesday of the month, and today we've got, we're going to look at energy issues primarily, but other issues as well, and um, our guest today is Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation, who's coming out at 9.30, he's not available before 9.30, unfortunately, so we have to rate <laughs> on for half an hour, um, but uh, he... Um, He's coming on to talk about a number of issues. He is, of course, the anti-nuclear campaigner at the Australian Conservation Foundation. But we want to talk about a few things today. One, one is the re- rehabilitation situation with lots of mines where the public purse seems to get caught with the cost of all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the situation I mentioned a couple of weeks ago in Greenland, which Dave knows a fair bit about, where Australian companies are plundering its resources of particularly rare earths and and even uranium over there in one case, which led to an election. And um, we're going to talk about that because I think think we both feel feel Greenland's going to become pretty pivotal in the the big power power claim for all sorts of resources and fights, and China comes into it as well um, in the next uh, short period. So we'll have a talk about that as well. Be interesting to hear what Dave has to say about it that. It will indeed. It will. And uh, yeah, so that's it. And uh, oh, we better say here we are. I'm Kevin Healy, and we've got Zeb Peak here. We've got uh, we've got uh, Meg Kimber <laughs> here. We've got Meg Kimber here. He's going to be like, wait a minute, where's Karina? Meg's pressing the buttons. That's right. And, away. Uh, well, Karina, of course, we're only allowed three people in the studio at the most these days. So um, well, she was Karina was here. We'd have to have yeah. be in two studios. We'd have here. to get her to panel in a different studio. <laughs> that's right. Or have a couple in one do. and a couple, as we did a few weeks ago. But anyway, yeah. we'll, um, we'll sort all that out. And, um, yeah, anything you want to raise, people, at all? Um, I'm gonna, oh, look, I haven't poured... Damn it, I haven't... Hey, we all want a cup of tea? Oh, yeah. What's the tea of the day? It's just... Oh, it's been in my bag for a couple of weeks, so it's actually just the jasmine. I think I'll pass today, actually. Yeah. yeah, I don't think I need any. Thanks. Just, you just scrambled all the loose leaves out of the bottom <laughs> of your bag, have you? <laughs> no, you're in a particular place. <laughs> I won't say yes to that. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to accept the tea, but I don't know if I'm going to drink it. I can't guarantee it. <laughs> no, no, I can assure you it's been... Uh, it's quite safe in that bag. <laughs> there you are, yeah, well, one um, breakthrough <laughs> news event that I saw was... The that um, Scott Morrison visits a solar farm. First Whoa. time he's ever visited one. Did his brain explode? Um, well, he managed to not mention anything to do with solar and <laughs> talk solely about because um, it's uh, solar, owned but by... Solar, but solely about. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's owned by Twiggy Forest and he managed to just make the conversation about iron ore and um, oh. the all, all of the bad sides of, of that. Disappointingly, but you know, it, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> he, was, he was probably it's asking something. directions. He probably got lost. <laughs> uh, Twiggy must have invited him. Yeah, coming here. you can't yes. say no to Twiggy. Mm. No, that's right. Um, yeah, Meg, anything you wanted to latch on to? No, 
Nod of the head there as I have a sip of tea. Shake of um, the head. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Shake of the head. Uh, just a couple of, you know, a few items this week, of course. Um, we're pleased to know, because we've talked before about how government seems to contract out so many services, and it talks about the fact that, you know, it's running government on the cheap or whatever, but it certainly is. But, it, you know, jobs that would normally be done by public servants whom they're getting rid of at a great rate. Yeah. Um, just this week, it was announced that McKinsey, which is a big contract firm, has won three government contracts worth $6.5 million. The first worth $3 million is for a two-month project to provide support services for the vaccine rollout to the Department of Health. Now, I would have thought mm. so far on that it's a big fail. Uh, I, yeah, perhaps. Yeah, I'm not too um, up too to speed, up to speed yeah, with the vaccine rollout. No, but are you well, saying it's a failure because you haven't got your vaccine personally, Kevin? Well, I'm going to get one today, actually. Yeah. Are you? Yes, yes. What well, are you saying? Well, 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 Great success. Well, I'm planning to. I'm hoping I'll get one today. I'm going to ride from here over to the exhibition buildings down the road and um, and walk in and presume I can get one. I think you have to make an appointment. Mm. No, they said they also take walk-ins, they said. Oh, yeah, oh interesting. Because yeah. what I had heard about the vaccine rollout was that um, they are doing it mainly through GPs, but that does cause a bit of a disparity because GP mm. practices yeah. tend to be um, in the wealthier areas mm. and, you know, predominantly in of cities course, and yeah. things. That's right. um, so, yeah, well, it's good to see that they're also right. walking well, this the exhibitions. Yeah, the health centre I go to certainly hasn't got them at this stage, so I'm going to go there. Um, so that's that. The second contract worth two point four million is up to, up to twelve weeks of work for the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. It will advise the government about quote maximising economic and social opportunities as the COVID nineteen vaccine progresses, whatever that means. Mm, maximising um, opportunities. Yeah, um, but also that's something I would have thought. That's the sort of advice you'd normally get from public servants in the department. I would have thought. Oh yeah, if the Department of Health isn't well placed to roll out a vaccine. I'm, I'm curious. <laughs> I'm curious about That's that. Right. Yeah. And support services for itself. Yeah. <laughs> they will also provide research and analysis, project management, strategic policy advice, and communications products. Apparently, public servants can't do those things. And the last contract worth 1.1 million is to assist Austrade quote reimagine tourism over three months. Whatever that means. Mm, okay. Um, tur- domestic tourism, maybe. Yeah. Well, not to I know, but anyway, that's that one. <laughs> Meanwhile, Deloitte has won a 10-month contract to help the Department of Defence with its Smart Owner Initiative. The initiative seeks to make use of digital twin technology to cut the cost of maintaining defence systems. That's worth $4.7 million, the contract. Again, I have no idea what that means either. And PwC, which is one of the big four in the world, of course, has won a nine-month contract to help the Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources with cyber security preparedness in the electricity and gas sector, and the contract is worth $1.1 million. Now, there's not one of those I don't think a, a, a public servant couldn't do. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, definitely. Did you see about this ecological thing in New South Wales government and the way that they got this firm to develop the conservation plan for the Western Sydney growth areas and then the person who ran the firm owned a bunch of land that they now get offsets. They've made millions of dollars in offsets for putting their land aside as (laughs) conservation land. I didn't see that, but it sounds good. Yeah. Our friends at the Centre for Public Integrity 
who we've had on the show before uh, are quoted the the one of the directors uh, uh, Anthony Wheelie. Yeah, he's uh, he's uh, <laughs> saying surely the purpose of this scheme was not to make untold millions for private investors. Surely not. No, surely no. Not. Of course, these schemes they never are. They just no. happen to do it inadvertently. Mm. Somehow, yeah, it's just inadvertently they get yeah. their snouts in the trough. Mm. <laughs> um, and you'll be pleased to know. We're all contributing to the kids going to private schools, the very expensive private schools. We've been doing that since Howard, haven't we? We yeah. have for a long, long time, but it's getting, yeah. it's getting better and better. Taxpayers contribute more than 10550 10, toward the cost of educating each private school student annually, twice as much as many parents pay in fees. <laughs> uh, it compares to the 19000 paid by taxpayers for each state school student. But then it says, and 12300 for those in the Catholic sector. Now, I regard the Catholic sector as also private schools, so... Um, yeah. Yeah. If you add up the twelve, three, and the ten, we're paying um, therefore twenty-two, nearly twenty-three thousand um, for each private school student, compared to nineteen thousand for state school students. Now, if all that went into the state system, it'd be great. And people who want to run their own system, they can if they want to, but they mm-hmm. should pay for it themselves, in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. We'd have a much better public school system, I would imagine. You say twenty-three thousand mm-hmm. in tax. Well, presumably out of our out of anyway. our taxes, yeah, that's the money that goes to those schools, and um, there's a whole year? lot about it here. Yeah. But the so, um, okay, and they claim, oh. of course, they save money because then they, you know, the, those kids aren't going to the state system, and the state hasn't got to pay and all that. It's but classic that's, uh, Howard era logic, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah like oh, right. we'll fund private industry to take the quote unquote burden yeah. of. The public service. That was always the case um, going way back, even in the fight when we were fighting against state aid in the first place mm. many years ago now. And of course, B.A. Santa Maria, who was the big spokesman for the anti communist Catholic movement, he would, in the same sentence, without blushing, demand state aid for Catholic schools mm. and then say that communists brainwash little children. Mm. Um, and he wouldn't even blush. No, just, wow. Oh, boy. Um, well, talking of subsidies, um, a progressive think tank, the Australia Institute, has had a go at calculating how much um, federal budgets roughly subsidise um, the fossil fuel industry each year. And they came up with $10.3 billion over the past financial year, which is equivalent to $19,686 a minute. <laughs> Um, which is apparently um, more than um, the the costing for the army and, and defence in Australia. So, Whoa. wow, it's yeah, it's up to a little bit of um, you know discussion how to calculate these subsidies. It, obviously, it's always going to be um, mm. a really complicated mesh thing, so that you know it's not obvious how much. Um, we're funding these things, but yep. still. No, it's, it's interesting that because I was one thing I might, I may have going to raise later, but uh, this week um, Andrew Bolt, we shouldn't mention him at all, but Andrew Bolt has come out with one of his again one of his articles about climate change being rubbish, and he claims the world is actually not heating; it's going the other way. <laughs> the Pacific Islands aren't sinking; they're actually getting bigger. You know, stuff absolute rubbish mm. and then he's his partner in crime um his partner in crime the um the economist the fed the writer um terry mccann eh, mccrann in the herald sun the next day came out attacking that report you just talked about 
and saying yeah. that they, you know, their figures are wrong because they don't take into account this, that, and number of things. But mm-hmm. he, he really mm-hmm. gets stuck into them, um, you know, that, that in fact the fossil industry is not being subsidised and all that stuff. Yeah, so and he, they contribute to the right, economy and, much more. Yeah, or and, something, and, and that climate change is, you know, that, that and he, in, the, in the process he attacks those who think climate change is serious and all that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, but no, I'd trust their figures rather than his, if you don't mind my saying <laughs> I'd be inclined to as well. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. So that's uh, yeah, but it's interesting, isn't it? They're, they're really interesting figures, though, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, do you know much about um, the the fuel tax credit scheme? Um, it's so apparently seven point eight billion is al- allocated to that scheme um, in the federal budget. Yeah, that's. I presume that's the scheme that farmers are also involved with. Mm-hmm. Which seems they say that because their vehicles are driven off road, they shouldn't have to pay the road costs because there, <laughs> there are charges for road yeah. usage, etc., that go into registration and all those things. And they say that these vehicles are, are you know on mining sites or on farms are used off off road. And therefore, mm. they shouldn't pay the same taxes as those who use them on road. So they get a credit, uh, fuel credit for um, for that. That's I presume that's what they're talking about. Okay, right, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. N- another quite serious problem that's arisen, or hasn't just arisen, but it's um, it's obviously becoming more complicated because we say there's more works taking place at the moment with all these grants for buildings, etc. A post-COVID building boom is speeding up a massive asbestos challenge in Victoria with more than 178,000 tonnes handled every year and far more tipped by 2030. And uh, it goes on, but the problem we now face, of course, is that... Uh, that as they're doing more and more of these works, they're finding more and more asbestos, and in, in, in particularly where they're taking old buildings down and putting up apartments, etc. But also, um, interesting significance in the story, the old method was just to bury it in a hole, but now that storage capacity has started to close up. In Melbourne's north and west, a lot of places that were landfill sites are now development sites. And, of course, with their landfill sites and you dumped asbestos, that once you develop it, the, the asbestos mm. is there. Mm. But the fact that it's also in north and west, the places where the landfill sites were, I mean, it's the old story that they're the areas of Melbourne mm. where you dump those industries. Uh, you never never, you never you read about them in Turak or Kew or Brighton, those mm. sort of industries. But, uh, but mm. it is quite serious with all that asbestos floating around again. Mm. Uh, and the... Interesting on that same thing about emissions and uh, and toxic things. Um, Donald Trump, California, uh, set up a um, a vehicle emission standard, a, a quite strict one, the clean air standard for vehicles, which Trump vetoed. Uh, and he said it, it was something the federal government should do, and he, of course, was giving them a right to do what they bloody well wanted. Well, interestingly mm. enough, uh, Biden is doing a few things. Biden is actually going to end, because Trump had taken California to court over it and, and said they, they couldn't have a stricter um, emission standard than the federal standard, which was you know <laughs> virtually nothing with him. Yeah. Uh, and Biden has now dropped the case, so they can go ahead and California can, and states mm. generally can go ahead and do, and maybe hopefully Biden himself, of course, will tighten up their own standards. That would be good. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's a surprisingly good news story there. 
Yeah, that's right. On city limits, we shouldn't do that. Yeah. Sort of mm-hmm. thing. Well, this is better then. You're confusing um, people. <laughs> <laughs> hang on, I'm going to have a sip of tea. Ah, it's um, this this one's this is another United States story, but not so positive for them, I don't think. A former director of America's National Security Agency says misinformation is one of the greatest threats to democratic governments and social media companies need to take more responsibility for content being um, pushed out on their platforms. Admiral retired Michael Rogers, also a former commander of US Cyber Command within the Defence Department and he worked under Trump and Obama, uh, has come out saying it's terrible, it's a trash to democracy that people put out fake news. Now, here's a, here's a country that over decades and decades and decades has, has done more to push out fake news and bring down governments with false information, like the coup in Chile and mm. even here with uh, Whitlam to a great degree, but all over the world they've practised false in- information. The CIA's role around the world is terrible, mm. but now he's complaining that... Uh, it might happen to the United States, for God's mm. sake. Uh, how dreadful. Gee. Uh, he, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, and, and one thing just, just worth mentioning uh, is that you might remember that bloke, Bo Pahari, um, who was the bloke at, at um, AMP who mm. was got the job and then lost the job mm-hmm. because of a settlement of a, a, an earlier sexual harassment case mm-hmm. uh, they're suggesting that he's 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 retiring he's getting out of the place now because he's mm. you know he lost that job etc and they're suggesting he could get up to 50 million dollars payout uh, now I would have thought yeah. that given the given the basis on which he's leaving or not at least he's leaving in his own direction in his own Mm-hmm. His own choice at this stage, but because I guess that all that has, plays on it, I would have thought giving him anything would be uh, a bit ordinary. But they're suggesting he might walk out with fifty million. Fifty in the million. Kit. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. You could buy a few cups of coffee with that. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and AMP is still having great troubles get sorting out its messes anyway, and uh, yeah. trying to get rid of various parts of the company, etc. Mm. It's also this week the. AGL, we mentioned a few weeks ago, AGL was going to divide into two parts. Uh, one for the better parts, which were retail and uh, those area, mm. things that's doing in, in renewable energy. And the other part was going to be the filthy part with the coal mines and the gas and all the things that pollute. Yeah. But the second one wasn't going to have AGL in the title anymore. They, you know, somehow you hive that's off the fact mm. that, the fact, but it's having trouble now too. It's, it's, it's big CEO resigned suddenly last week out of the blue hmm. and it's thought to be because of this because there are apparently some internal in, inside the company they're still struggling over this 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 pro, this prospect mm. because they some some people are smart enough to realize that if you've got a company that deals solely in coal and gas and things that pollute it's going to be virtually impossible to get any sort of funding for it mm. or any um, from from the usual funding sources and so i think that's the internal struggle that's taking place they don't they place, don't want them to be separate because then they can't get the money they can't like pass the polluting side of the business off as a green overall we're pretty green no or get yeah. or get money when they want to raise money for Mm. You know, for expansion or mm. whatever else. They want to expand coal and gas these days. And this is after they lost that bid to try to put that offshore gas processing yes. out at Western Port. That's right, mm-hmm. yes, yes. I think yes. the writing's on the wall. I mean, the writing's been on the wall for so long, and these industries are so unsustainable. 
Yeah, and yet uh, some other investment mob came out last week and attacked the state government for knocking it back, saying the state government, you know, is is holding it, hiding its head in the sand, so to speak, because it doesn't real, it it isn't taking account of the fact that Victoria is going to become going to be going to be short on natural gas within two or three years, and mm. therefore we need to. Uh, get as much as we can and we should have allowed that to happen apparently so yeah gee <clears throat> natural gas i think because yeah. it has the word natural in it is yeah. that why yeah, people that's think right. it's that's right. yeah, yeah. Okay. i'm sure that's on purpose yeah. as well yeah it's incredible how that the conversation about gas is sort of it's just like somehow erupted and become like something that you always um or well, something that needs to be discussed as like a separate thing from other fossil fuels, and we have to have this like extra conversation mm. um, to figure out whether or not we want gas. When so yeah, they're sort of trying to maneuver gas into the renewables camp somehow because it sounds <clears throat> natural. Well, they do. That's right. Yeah. And of course, they mention we'll mention to Dave later, but they also talk about nuclear reactors now as being yes. part of the. You know, yes. They're still talking. Well, I think that's you know virtually really so impractical because of all yeah. the reasons we've talked to Dave about it for a long time. But yeah. nonetheless, there's still even the Grattan report. We talked to Dave about this, but the Grattan report a couple of weeks ago, which had good and bad bits in it about where we, you know, but it, it said we should be heading for renewables uh, much more quickly, but it did still say we need ten mm. percent gas. And it also mentioned that we should look at nuclear reactors as a, a possibility. So I'm yeah. sure Dave Sweeney will have something to say about I that. I think he will. Yeah, I saw a, um, a fantastic ad. I'm not sure whether it was for AGL or, or something else, but um, it was this like cartoon of two people on a tandem bike, and the f- in the front there was like a sort of dainty woman with like solar panels on her. And then the back there was like this muscly man with I don't know like the word gas on his t-shirt or something. Uh, <laughs> the is marketing it? is that's just, what they were saying like gas is powering solar. Gas is, is like powering the transition to renewables. I feel oh, like is the gross. is the discourse there. <laughs> oh my god, that's so gendered. Yes, they keep talking Yuck. about transition when it comes to renewables and and gas, but they never talk. They rarely they rarely mention transition when it comes to the workers in the fossil industry who need a transition to yeah. you know, yeah. to something else, to an alternative way of life, um, which is you know the most important part of it. You've got to make sure those workers aren't just left stranded, yeah. but you've also they're working in industries that can't survive or we can't sustain them or can't sustain the the planet. In fact, yeah. And you'll be pleased also to know that the uh, that dreadful union, the construction union, got fined 1.2 million by the federal court last week. Uh, mm. This is because it had a picket line. Now, picket line, as we know these days, is totally illegal. And I don't agree with all the things they said on it in terms of abusing people. There's a bit rough, and but, but nonetheless, mm. um, they were fined because they a, a worker at this company got sacked because the company believed he was passing on information to the union. Apparently the, the company doesn't like having unionists That's there. That's still Ill- illegal to sack someone right about that, right? Well, no, apparently okay. not, because the court upheld the right. sacking. Oh. And Justice Stephen Rare has um, fined the $1.2 million. He said they're, they're totally out of control. Mm. And for holding a picket line, he used the terms menacing, calculated, shameful, inexcusable, unacceptable. On he goes. So that's a great celebration for May Day this week. Mm. 
Speaking of May Day, I noticed when I came in the door, you have to now sign in because of all the COVID things going on. Um, the pen today for signing in was red, and I thought, is that a tribute to May Day, or what's the story here? <laughs> so I asked that question, and I was told it was simply there's a shortage of pens. So <laughs> it, it was, it was a chronic, as, uh, chronic as shortage of pens at 3CR. <laughs> yeah, right. If you want to support 3CR, post us your pens. <laughs> We've got that bloody radiothon coming up shortly. We might need to buy lots of pens. Help support us so we can replenish the pens in this, in this place. Yeah, and we mentioned also some time ago that there's a, there's a, there's a mob who, well, there are a few mobs, but there's people who judge the quality of coal. So we're told, you know, brown coal in Victoria is the worst and, and black, some black coal is supposed to be not so bad and it's uh, less polluting than others and a higher quality. But that the companies doing the assessments, the laboratories, were often fudging the figures quite a bit and they, they you know, the coal that was supposed to be really good wasn't nearly as good as they were saying. Oh, yes. And this was seen as... Now, it's also come up about asphalt. Um, laboratories testing asphalt, a key ingredient in servicing roads, have been falsifying results of mixtures made at plants to inflate their apparent quality. The manipulation of figures can affect aspects such as the strength of the road surfacing material and raises the risk of taxpayer-funded roads deteriorating more quickly than expected, industry sources say. It, is, it marks another incarnation of testing falsification afflicting various sectors, so it goes on. Mm. But again, we're seeing um, this sort of thing happening, so you, you can't... And can't rely even on laboratories. And it points out also that many of the laboratories doing this work are actually attached to the company producing it. So mm. <laughs> there's, there's something of an incentive there to uh, mm. come up with the fudged figures if, if the thing isn't too good. Mm. Yeah, industries and organisations and companies regulating themselves has become a real thing, mm. a very mm. common thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Well, self-regulation is <laughs> the way to go, apparently. It, uh, it certainly yeah. is. If you're a, if you're a business, it's quite handy. <laughs> yeah, very handy. And before we go to Dave, because we're getting close to it now, um, we almost killed that half hour. Um, the, <laughs> we uh, did it. <laughs> the uh, uh, this is a really interesting one. I think um, the Morrison government in in before the two previous elections, sixteen and eighteen, the government promised that it would um, introduce a beneficial ownership register. Because in many companies, no one quite knows who the real beneficiaries are and who's who owns the bloody things. Mm-hmm. But it's backed off and it's walked away again from plans to unmask nominee directors, a move experts claim will entrench Australia as a haven for laundered money and the proceeds of corruption. What? The government committed to introducing a so-called beneficial ownership register in, in 16 and again in 18 with expectations the reform would be delivered as part of an overhaul of the company's registration database. But Serena Lillywhite, the Chief Executive of Transparency, Transparency International Australia, said she had been told by Treasury that the government had no appetite for this commitment and was not open to pursuing it. This is one of the biggest loopholes in our corporate register and there is a complete lack of political will to do anything about it, she said. Money laundering in the property sector and more generally is such a huge problem for Australia and this reform would have gone some way to addressing the issue. Knowing who sits behind the wheel and who the real company benefits are as a fundamental step in tackling money laundering and other corporate misconduct. And uh, Jane Hume, the Senator Minister responsible, 
have refused to answer questions on the government's promise to deliver a publicly available beneficial ownership register that would make clear the ultimate owners in control of a company. So, so they're saying that if if they don't do the register, then the then Australia will be a place for to encourages money laundering. Yeah, and in right. fact, the story goes on to say that many countries are bringing in these laws now, mm, and yeah. so it'll make Australia even more attractive for money laundering mm. because we haven't got the laws that expose who actually is benefiting from I mean, it's what's a, happening. Politically, it's a lot like the, the federal anti-corruption body because that was on the cards for ages. You know, that was sort of – the pressure was put on the – on the government to to say something about it. They're like, yeah, sure, we'll do it. And then, of course, you know, it's just like it disappears into the yeah. ether. Mm. That's right. That's right. Well, look, let's um, take a break and let's – we've just raved on for all this time. <laughs> I've raved on anyway. And, um, and we'll get Dave Sweeney on the line and get some real sense into this program. <laughs> Renowned Surf Coast musician and artist Red White and his band of nearly 20 years, Ink Factor, with their swampy, psyched-out, surf-punk sounds, launch their new album, Soup Du Jour, on Friday the 30th of April at the Barwon Club in Geelong with special guests, the Hibernators and the Quick Sixes. Tickets through barwonclub.ostix.com.au Launching Soup Du Jour on Friday the 30th of April at the Barwon Club Geelong. For more info, go to facebook.com forward slash Inktfactor. Inktfactor and Red White are proud supporters of 3CR Grassroots Community Radio. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. Okay, and on the line we do have Dave Sweeney, who's, of course, the anti-nuclear campaigner with the Australian Conservation Foundation. And Dave, we'll, we'll kick off with, with uranium and nuclear. Um, I want to talk about other things today, but, but there have just recently we've seen a report from the Grattan Institute which had good and bad bits in it, but one of the bad bits was it said one of the possibilities was nuclear reactors. Uh, the government's technology... Bury your head in the sand report also mentions nuclear reactors. And I noticed recently uh, there's a report from, from Brussels with the European Commission, um, which is doing a, a classification system for investors. I hope Dave's still there. Um, for investors. And um, one of the things, one of the problems they're facing is how to deal with nuclear as part of the, the clean energy future of Europe. Um, comment on these things? 
Sorry, everybody. We've lost Dave. Oh. We've had a technical issue. <clears throat> right, yeah. Well, we better take a break and get him back. Okay, Dave, we got you on the line now. 
You have, Kevin. Oh, good, good. I'm glad. I, actually, as I was leaving home this morning, uh, the Brecky show went to one and, and the person wasn't on the other end, and I thought with great hubris, that never happens on City Limits. <laughs> um, you know what else was funny was your da- you uh, Kevin's question was about 30 minutes long, <laughs> and then at the end of it you weren't there, and I was like, good luck repeating that question. <laughs> Did you, I don't suppose you, you heard it, David. I was saying that the the Grattan Institute report recently, the government's renewable energy, its technology solution, all mention nuclear. And recently, the European Commission, it's it's doing a report on the future of clean energy, but there's a debate within Europe about where nuclear sits in that. Uh, Comment on these issues? I certainly can. Um, And the other thing is that, um, uh, you know, what we've just seen, is an example of danger because, like, um, that was a mobile phone call on a public or community radio station and the technology failed. Um, you know, it's a minor hiccup, a um, bit of an embarrassment, but it's not Chernobyl or Fukushima. Um, so, you know, I think we need to be always very mindful of, of technical hubris. Um, mm. But you're absolutely right. There's a concerted national and international push to recast nuclear as uh, an essential uh, climate response. The industry, which has failed to deliver for so long, Kevin is now repackaging itself and pointing to the existence of non-existent um, small modular reactors as the key for addressing climate change. Um, a whole bunch of political players and industry players who for years have derided climate change, deny climate change or oppose moves to address it are now jumping on board and saying climate change is a great challenge and we need nuclear to embrace it. You spot on the money um, that a, a range of uh, think tanks, uh, conservative politicians and uh, sort of policy, overarching policy institutes are now looking at this. And it's all the focus for this is um, in early November, as you know, um, the world's attention will be on the uh, Climate Conference of Parties in Glasgow, the COP, um, and the nuclear industry is spending a bucket load of cash to try and insert itself in legitimise itself, get a social licence, and also, ideally, stop point three is to get access to another vast uh, stash of public funding. So it is a... At the moment, it's a real contest of ideas. But the interesting thing here, and it's real, and it's a real push, but the interesting thing is that the big end of town remains remarkably unconvinced. Like, no-one on a private level is funding nuclear. No-one is building nuclear and the other thing is the uh, the promised small modular reactors are conceptual. So it, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors, but it is um, no doubt serious. And it's quite bizarre too, because while this is happening, we're also looking at a situation where um, the Australian government is considering a proposal to tax people who have solar panels on their roof and who are putting power into the grid, when there's excess power going into the grid, they're looking at charging people for generating and passing on that power because our grid is so creaky and old that uh, and, and non-responsive to renewables that um, that's a problem. Mm. So on one hand, we're saying let's spend a fortune on reactors that don't exist with all the magnitude of risk that they would pose and the existing industry poses, and let's also tax have a disincentive on the production of renewable energy. Um, so go figure on that. And it's a really important time for people who are 
who are working and fighting and advocating for a clean energy future to join the dots and, and make a really compelling case that our energy future is renewable, not radioactive. But the lead time for these reactors also is so long now and it's so expensive. By the time one was built anyway, um, renewables would be even far more advanced than they are now, I assume. Oh, there's no question whatsoever. The cost curve is absolutely utterly changed. Like at the start of this century, a nuclear power contributed 20% of the world's electricity, renewables 10. Now, renewables are doing 25% and nuclear power is 10. So it's utterly changed. And that's only going to go one way. And that's good news. So what we need to do now is match the good news in the technical development and the efficiency with some good news in policy settings and getting serious about this, like stopping the culture war on renewables and just getting serious about supercharging it. Like when you say the cost of nuclear reactors, you're absolutely right. The cost is phenomenal. Like in Britain where there's one that's delayed and over cost and over time and budget, the cost is blown out enormously. And that's the reactors that exist. But the interesting thing in the current debate is most of the nuclear proponents are advocating, selling and seeking favours and funding for reactors that don't actually exist except on paper. Mm. Um, Like the idea of a small modular reactor is not new. It's not a new, fresh, exciting thing. They've been around for 60 years, predominantly in naval submarines. Um, And they haven't made the step from that niche use and pretty risky and pretty uh, negative use into a commercial operation anywhere in the world. Now, that shows that there's significant hiccups, hurdles and problems, obstacles facing their commercialisation and development. That's not going to change in a hurry. And what we need to do is not go down the path of dangerous distractions, but actually meet our real energy challenges and actually embrace our real energy opportunities. And nuclear is neither. From a, you mentioned policy, Dave. Um is it possible that there'll be this perverse outcome, well, technically perverse outcome, where um, nuclear energy companies will get credit for, like, almost like carbon offsetting kind of credits? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. That, that sort of thing is exactly what they're looking for. Yeah. They're looking for, for offset. They're looking for public subsidy for development of more modular reactors. They've got massive public subsidy for... Um, existing old-style clunky reactors that exist. They're looking for further things too, like Mm. insurance caps and liabilities for damage. Like in the States, there's a thing called the Price-Anderson Act that limits the amount that a nuclear utility would be responsible to pay in the event of an accident. Mm. And they're looking for all sorts of favours, exemptions and exemptions. So, yeah, it's a sweet... They're very... They've got... Right, you've got to give it to them. They've got Mm. appetite and chutzpah. You know, 10 years ago world was going, my God, Fukushima, Mm. 10 years later, this mob are back in a new snake oil suit and selling a product that doesn't exist or promoting a discredited product that does exist and asking for favours and not only asking for funding, but asking to be treated as the climate saviours, which they are most definitely not. Mm. And is there a particular, like, are are they focusing on on Europe or the States or, like, where are they hoping to... To gain support, because obviously there's still a lot of um, public like reluctance, and um, obviously for good reason um, against these 
um, nuclear power stations? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, and, and you're absolutely right. There is a lot of uh, scepticism, if not opposition, then at least concern, caution, scepticism um, in the public, and with good reason, as you say. Um, a key focus at the moment is through an initiative through the European Union. As Kevin mentioned earlier, just before I dropped out, I heard Kevin mentioning about a, a European report, a, um, a joint European Parliament overarching science and energy report that's looking at what um, what energy sources can be considered sustainable and then um, accepted in that framework and prioritised as a climate response at the at the uh, COP meeting, the, the Climate Conference of Parties in Glasgow in November. Um, that's been a really significant focus of attention for them, uh, for the nuclear industry. They've had a good crack here and, and regular listeners or watchers of this space would see, have seen that there's been a big push. There's been, in the last two years, like a, um, a federal inquiry, a New South Wales inquiry and a Victorian parliamentary inquiry into the role of nuclear power. A couple of years prior to that, there was a South Australian Royal Commission into expanding the nuclear industry. Now, all of those things heard extensive evidence and all of them came back uh, very conditional, like from the strongest probably was the Victorian one, which said there's no place um, and that it, it doesn't uh, stack up. Um, but all of them spoke about the, the uh, non-viability commercially, the lack of social licence, the, the continued problems with waste management, no assured disposal pathway. So there was this host of obstacles. Kevin mentioned also the Grattan report. And the Grattan uh, Institute has been very conditional. Like, it's been sort of in that camp of, oh, well, we should keep the option open if in the future, if things get better, if they get more viable, if they solve waste, if renewables go belly up. So lots of it. Um, so there is this sort of been a push in Australia, which I think the the, the groups and organisations and communities that don't want to see us go nuclear have largely weathered that storm. Um, but it's still there, and there's pushes to remove. There are there's two pieces of legislation in Australia that prohibit nuclear power, and there's a very concerted conservative politics and nuclear industry push. Uh, Mineral Council of Australia and others seeking to remove those prohibitions. Um, you know, again, couched in the terms of let's be technology neutral and keep our options open. But the underlying thing is, can we open the floodgates and, and get a bite at the public purse? Um, so it's uh, it has a very clear national expression, this push, and it is you can track very similar arguments and very similar positions uh, internationally, and it's all heading to Scotland in November. Yeah, and speaking of uh, Scotland, we'll go, we'll, we'll sort of move across the land a bit to Greenland, Dave. I did want to talk to you about that today. I mentioned it the other day on program a couple of weeks ago. Australian companies, um, Greenland being rich in um, in rare earths, and, and unfortunately uraniums there as well which led, in fact, through an Australian company to a recent election there. Can you give us a bit about that, your attitude to what's happening in Greenland? Yeah, I, I can, Kevin. It's been really quite fascinating, actually. It's, it's tragic and fascinating at the same time, like so much of life is. The, uh, you know, Greenland's ice is receding and land that was previously covered up is now opening up and it's being seen by the international mining sector as, woohoo, the new frontier saddle up and um, get to Greenland. And there's a bunch of Australian companies, in particular one, Greenland uh, Minerals and Energy, a small mob based in Perth, 
um, who have gone there and developed what was first a uranium proposal, but then as uranium has increasingly lost its, its commodity price and its social luster and licence, they've reinvented it as a rare earth stroke uranium project. Um, and they've also actually secured a line of funding with a large Chinese corporation. So that's made them more viable than they otherwise would have been. They have um, been advancing this project over the last uh, five or six years. Now, Greenland's got a really small... Greenland's an autonomous uh, territory of Denmark and um, it has its own parliament that deals with everything except uh, foreign affairs and defence. And about five or six years ago, Denmark ceded um, to Greenland control of um, mineral and energy resources. Um, and at that time, GME really pushed in hard. And there was a big issue at that time. And the Greenland Parliament, which is made up of 31 people, split nearly right down the middle. 15 red-hot opposed to the uranium project, 16 in favour. Most of those in favour, Kevin, were in favour because they're looking for any income stream that gives them greater independence from Denmark. They really want to have a line of cash that is not coming from Copenhagen. And so they supported this project. And then as it has developed, more and more people in Greenland have expressed concern about the environmental impacts, about cultural impacts, about impacts on fisheries, all sorts of stuff. And there have been more and more uh, uh, manifestations of of concern and opposition, which led to uh, one of the small parties in the coalition, the 1516 um, Parliament, um, saying, "No, look, we we don't we're not keen on this anymore. Actually, we we are hearing too many people saying no, so we don't support it anymore." Which led to a snap election, national election held on April 6th, uh, which effectively was a referendum on this project, and. Um, What's happened since is that the party that has the strongest anti-project and anti-nuclear position won the majority of seats. It's a Sami, uh, an Indigenous party. It then sat down to negotiate a government with a range of the other uh, minor parties and, and cut a deal with a, a nationalist party. So they've now formed a compact and a government. And one of the key things in their agreement of government is a commitment to both oppose this particular project, Carnival, and to uh, introduce legislation uh, to ban and prohibit uranium mining in Greenland. Um, so that is a great result from the perspective of those who want to see Greenland protected and reduced from the threat of contamination. It's a great result as an expression of community concern and response. Um, Unfortunately, the company is, has, uh, you know, continued to say that it will push for all its legal rights and its economic rights. So the whole thing is they're flagging a sort of compo case or else a reversal of the policy decision. So this is all yet to be fully fixed, but it's trending a good way for protection. But what it shows is, um, you know, these companies just keep coming and coming and worrying it at, uh, governments to try and do the right thing at communities that are concerned about corporations doing the wrong thing and it's like you know this endless cycle so we're in a good spot now we just have to consolidate it and hold that company and this industry accountable in that place yeah the the rare earths of course they're not just for um 
you know, technical phones and all sorts of things, but they also have a, have a military purpose, which is the reason people speculate why Trump tried to buy the place a couple of years ago. Um, therefore, um, Greenland's likely to become a bit of a centre of international intrigue, isn't it, with all these companies trying to move into what they see as a rich resource? Yeah, it will. It absolutely will. It's a, it will be a bit of an epicentre of, you know, choice of what sort of future to be won because like, the, the country is small. Um, it, it is absolutely shaped by and dependent on um, the natural environment and natural resources. Um, and it's a real, it's basically a real contest of, of wills and vision between people who want to protect their culture, their way of life and the environment that underpins and profoundly shapes all of that and people who are, uh, are much more, if you like, internationalist and fly in, fly out, and there's profit to be had, and then we move on. Yeah. Well, yeah. I suppose one of the real challenges in this, though, Kevin, and one of the ones that keeps coming back again and again, is that I know, um, I know for a fact that a number of the people in government that supported um, the project, they weren't happy about the project. They supported it because a bigger picture of an independent, an income stream, uh, financial sovereignty and economic empowerment and agency. And those things often face, like, that's facing Greenland as a nation, but those things often face First Nation communities in Australia and around the world. The choices of, like, what other choice do we have? And I'm not happy about it, but this is as good as it's going to get. And so one of the real challenges is, you know, how do we build economic options for communities and people and nations that don't literally involve, you know, ripping up the earth and, and taking the underpinning of their culture and their country and all the things that have made that and then turning that as the only way to commodify that is the only way that you can get an income stream to address health, education, opportunities, employment, all the stuff that we want and need. In fact, um, another Australian, uh, another explorer there, but a bloke with probably a bit more of a conscience than this minerals, uh, Greenland minerals lot, um, he actually described Greenland minerals as acting like an ugly Australian, I noticed. Um, mm. They're obviously... Well, often, you know, we look at them and there's some Australian companies in, in Africa, in Greenland, in other places, often in um, jurisdictions with less experience or less governance. And... Um, the terms come up a number of times that it's, uh, you know, it's, it's Les Patterson with a drill rig. Hmm. <laughs> right. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's an we have to wind up, unfortunately, Dave, because we had that, that hiccup early in the show. But... Um, but uh, it's an irony, isn't it, that Greenland, but the Arctic area generally, uh, as it melts, the very companies that have caused the melting are now moving in to exploit it. Absolutely. It's, it's, completely, it's completely tragic and ironic. Um, and, um, and it is really important, I think, now, like, like people know, like listeners to 3CR know and all that, we, we know that, but it's really important to keep, you know, eyes open, ears open and, and be engaged and active in, in this sort of effort. Like, it doesn't matter, uh, like, if it's a, a mining of resources or, or refugees and incarceration or first rights, uh, the rights of First Nations. Like, there's so many things that these are braided up that mm. it's so important that we engage because, like, you know, the Greenland thing for all the problems, what it showed is an active citizen 
um, initiative has changed the government and changed it to a better position and a better set of settings. Mm. And that's what we need to just keep trucking on and doing. Thanks, Dave. That really good points as always. I'm sorry we didn't have as much time as usual, but anyone who's listening, you're listening to City Limits on 3CR and you can listen back to uh, this interview with Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation on our website, 3cr.org.au slash citylimits or through your podcast app. But we'll have to leave it there, Dave. Unfortunately, we have new COVID rules where we have to get the studio ready for Anarchist World this week coming up after us. Absolutely. We don't want anarchists getting crooked. Um, <laughs> not, make uh, those guys mad. Not, not on the week of May Day, Dave. Not on the week of not May Day. Now, apologies for the hiccup and thanks as ever for the opportunity. Always good to talk with you, Mob. Okay. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Thanks again. Okay. And, Zeb, we are going to have to wind up. Next week's transport, of course, John McPherson, our regular, is going to be away. He's on a, he's on a special train trip, so we'll have a different transport program next week. But, um, Zeb, look, before we go, thank... Um, Thank Meg for doing a wonderful job uh, oh, keeping yes. us on air. Absolutely. Thank My you, absolute Meg. pleasure. My absolute pleasure. I remember what she used to say